Hey folks, welcome to Narratives. Narratives is a podcast exploring the ways in which the world is better than in the past, the ways it is worse, and the paths towards a better, more definite vision of the future. I'm your host, Will Jarvis, and I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to this episode. I hope you enjoy it. You can find show notes, transcripts, and videos at narrativespodcast.com. Well, Matt, how are you doing this afternoon? I'm doing really well. Thanks for having me today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. Um, do you mind giving us a brief bio and some of the big ideas you're interested in? Yeah, for sure. So um, I'm Matt Clifford. Um, the vast majority of my time goes on being uh, co-founder and CEO of a company called Entrepreneur First. And what we do at Entrepreneur First is we try to increase the supply of great entrepreneurs globally. We do that by backing individuals who we think will be great founders before they have a company and helping them find a co-founder and build a business from scratch. So I've been doing that for actually about a decade now, which is probably a lot longer than I thought I was going to be doing it uh, a decade ago. But I, I've um, ended up... Um, very, very convinced that it's actually a really important mission uh, and that, you know, the, the world needs more entrepreneurs. So that sort of provides a good bridge into like the big ideas I'm interested in. I'm very interested in um, the broad idea of talent and what, what people with exceptional talent uh, can and should do to maximize the impact they have in the world, whatever kind of impact they're interested in. Um, I'm interested in that from a, you know, kind of business and, you know, value creation point of view. I'm interested from a sort of altruistic point of view. Um, uh, but, you know, I, I think this idea of like, do we as a species allocate talent well uh, overall is, is a really important question and probably still underexplored. So that's one big thing. And then I guess the other side of what I do at EF is obviously one side is talent and the other side is technology. And so I'm very, very interested in the question of are we are we doing enough to um, survive as, and thrive as a species in terms of making the sorts of scientific and technological breakthroughs that I, I think are going to be required if the answer to that question is to be yes. And so I'm very interested in how do we design institutions that, that encourage um, the right sorts of incentives for, for scientists and technologists and, you know, how do we uh, ensure that, you know, as a society, again, as a species, we're allocating uh, capital and talent in the right ways on that. So that's probably the second big thing. And then final thing I'd say is I'm sort of interested in how those two questions tie together um, in, into a set of, I suppose, more political questions about, you know, what what are the set of values that um, we would want to, if you like, embed in those processes of both like the institutions that we build and the technologies that we build. And, you know, if you believe, as I do, that um, actually there are some sets of values that we would want to uh, survive for a very long time and some that we would not want to be trapped in for a very long time, then I think the question of, like, how do we, um, how do we design these, uh, these institutions and processes to give the values we care about the best chance of surviving and thriving is also really important. That's great. That's great. Well, I, I want to hit on, on on all those points. How, how would you grade humanity right now on, on how we're doing on these fronts? You know, you recently had a, a tweet, which I really enjoyed, which was, you know, we were promised flying cars, but all we got were three, you know, 90% effective vaccines within 10 months and a novel pandemic with a new technology. You know, it's, it's, it's pretty awesome. Uh, you know, do, do you think we're like 
kind of beginning to escape the great stagnation? You know, where are we on those fronts and, and how are we doing as a species? I don't think it's inevitable that we escape the great stagnation. I, I think there are, um, unfortunately, I think there are a lot of um, institutional uh, challenges throughout. You know, I hate to use like nebulous and loaded terms like the West, but I think it probably is the best shorthand for, for what I mean. I, I, I think, well, do we have the talent um, and the, the sort of, skill to be able to create things like, you know, mRNA vaccines for novel pandemic. Yeah, I mean, that should be a very encouraging sign. But I kind of find the worrying thing about that story is that it took a very legible, like extreme global manifested risk to emerge in order for us to do that. And no sooner had we done that, than we got back to business as usual. And I think you see all around you, the signs that we're, you know, like, going to make a bunch of mistakes that um, exacerbate, you know, like the set of things that probably led us to the pandemic rather than compounding the gains of, you know, being that, that, that we saw in things like the the development of, of those vaccines. So, you know, I, I think the thing I feel very optimistic about is, I'm, you know, I'm very, I'm a very big believer in our species. You know, I think humans are pretty amazing. And, and I think in, um, again, just painting very broad brushes, you know, I, I think like, we we have proven to be as a species very very good at um you kind of making scientific and technological breakthroughs i think the challenge that we have is as we you know as we scale um doing that you know i, I think i think we are hitting institutional barriers that that threaten to um perfectly offset or worse um the 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 advances that we're making um so yeah, I, I mean, I, one of my big worries is something I've written about a lot, but also one of my big motivators for for building in Entrepreneur First, a new kind of institution, is that you know I I do think that over the last you know sort of seventy five years or so, we we have I think largely accidentally done a great deal to disincentivize risk taking by actually in most areas of life, but I think you know society feels the pain of that particularly acutely. In, in science and technology. Gotcha. So so maybe it's something like you you've got we can build new technology. It's not like the the we've lost all the low hanging fruit. We've kind of picked all the fruit because we, if Absolutely. we you know th- there's the pandemic's kind of a gun to our head and we're like okay we can figure something out if need be. Um, what do you think is is the big institutional problem? Is it you know capital? Is it the the motivation side? Is, do people not have enough slack? Has it just gotten hypermimetic because of social media? What do you see, like, you know, being on the ground at Entrepreneur First and seeing a bunch of entrepreneurs and shepherding them through, what do you see as the big bottleneck right now? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think the the answer to that, I think there's two parts of the answer. I think, I think the first part is around macro talent allocation. I'll explain what I mean by that. The second, I think, is um, that we... We need new kinds of institutions that that are able to better uh, manage directed risk taking. And again, I'll, come, I'll explain what I mean by that. But I, I think the first bottleneck, macro talent allocation. I think like one of the great achievements of humanity over the last couple of centuries is that it is now possible to live for like many or even most people in you know kind of rich countries to live really comfortable actually broadly fulfilling lives without taking any risk. And that's 
great in a lot of ways. I think that's a huge achievement as a species. But what it means is um, that nearly, you know, in, in nearly all countries in the West, the default talent paths, and that, that's a, a phrase I use to mean like, what, what do, what is the sort of like, uh, most obvious path for the most talented people in a society to follow was the path of least resistance. That path in most of the West has become, I would argue, dominated by activities that I, 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 I'm, I'm going to be rude. Like, I, I think a borderline rent seeking in, in how they, um, in, in how they um, capture value. And, you know, let's be really concrete. I, do I think it would be good for the UK where I live if um, uh, a much smaller proportion of the most talented and ambitious people went into finance? Yeah, I do think that would be good for the UK. And like, yeah, I think financial services are really important um, part of the economy. And, you know, I certainly don't think that it should be zero, but like, it's kind of absurd, I think, that, uh, you know, I, I don't know what the numbers are today, but, you know, there's certainly a time when in the last decade where you know, if you take the top uh, universities in the UK, 60% plus of their computer science graduates even were going into finance. Um, and, and you know, I, I look at that and I say, well, there, there are kind of pretty good structural reasons to think that the market is distorted enough that a lot of the, re <laughs> a lot of the financial rewards from going into that sector don't necessarily reflect um, massive amounts of value creation <laughs> for society as a whole. So I think one bottleneck, you know, like, what, why is Silicon Valley so successful? I think one simple answer is it's the one place in the world where all the most talented and ambitious people want to build things, um, you know, want to, want to build primarily companies. I think building building society, a society where the most ambitious and talented people want to build things, products that are valued by other people, um, is a really important thing. And I, I you know, you, you can get rent-seeking entrepreneurs, obviously, but, but you know, broadly, call, call me a sort of starry-eyed idealist. I, I think most entrepreneurs are actually like, the vast majority of their efforts are about value creation. So I think that's one big thing is just that, you know, all sorts of reasons for this, but most of the world just doesn't, um, doesn't allocate the most talented and ambitious people to the most important problems. Um, and, you know, to be clear, I'm a pretty ardent capitalist. Like, I'm not like, I'm not saying that like someone should sit in government and, you know, kind of do that allocation. But I do think we need to think hard about like, what are the ways in which we may have distorted the incentives around that? Um, so, so that's one thing. And then on the institutional side, I think um, the, the other bottleneck is that, you know, I'm, I'm going to slightly do an EF pitch here, but I, I think it's because I genuinely believe that, you know, this is a huge problem, is that most of our, the institutions that we've created for funding innovation are sort of designed to retrofit um, examples of things that have worked in the past that actually come from a period where arguably the supply of innovation was too small. And so what we ended up doing is building a set of institutions and thinking particularly of traditional venture capital that sort of look like they're, you know, kind of building on the best practice of decades of how to fund innovation, which they are. I mean, obviously, I guess in some ways I am a VC, but, but, but I think the key point here is that every, so much of venture capital conventional wisdom is basically built on this tiny data set of things that worked in a particular 
tiny corner of California for a very small um, segment of human history. And yet they, these things often get cast as like iron laws of what works and what doesn't. Uh, to give a very concrete example, which obviously I spent the last 10 years trying to reverse, you know, the conventional wisdom in venture capital is you should, if you're gonna start a company, Start with a co-founder who you've known for like a decade. Ideally, you've worked with before. Maybe you went to school with, like the longer, the better. That's fine. But if, you know, if, if that were literally true, that was the only way to build great companies, then obviously we should do that. But I think like it only takes a moment of thought to think about how much that limits the supply of great companies. Because how many people have such a person that not only meets the kind of classic things of like, are they really smart? Are they really skilled? Are they really determined? Are they really ambitious? But also happens to have had their, you know, resided in your social network for the right amount of time and wants to start a company right now. You are literally reducing by orders of magnitude the pool of potential founders. So for me, like the bottleneck that EF takes away, and it's not just EF, there are people who've, who've sort of copied and adapted the model. But I do think removing that as a, a really concrete example of a bottleneck that reduces the supply of potential innovators is a really, I think, good example of how because, you know, most institutional design um, in our species comes from uh, actually a very short period of history in which, you know, I think we may over-universalize the lessons that have been learned. That, that's really good. That's really good. And it, it's fascinating how the stories we tell about how these things happen, you know, perpetuate, you know, into the future. I, you said some really interesting things there, Matt, um, about how, you know, the incentives for very ambitious people, you know, we'll just take the UK as an example, you know, they all drive to finance, you know, high consulting, etc. You know, you were at McKinsey, correct? With, I was, yeah, yeah. With your co-founder, right? I was that guy. We were, we were those people. Yeah, 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 exactly. It may be difficult to reflect here, but I know, you know, you went to Oxbridge, I believe, went to MIT as a Kennedy Scholar, political science, you know, went to consulting. You met Al some, somewhere along the way at McKinsey. When, you know, how did you guys decide? So you came up with this idea, you know, how sure were you when you jumped that this was going to work? You know, like I always <laughs> like to look back, you know, like you were you oh. like, you know, confident or were you, you know, not really confident? Like, like, did you assign odds? I don't know. I mean, the, 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 the true answer is I, I think we walked into it without really even properly interrogating <laughs> that, 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 that question. Um, I mean, I think for us, it was, it was a, in, in some ways a very stupid business to start age 25 with like no experience of entrepreneurship or venture investing or tech, right? Um, I, I think we were wrong about nearly everything at EF, apart from this one central bet that turned out to be right enough that it like swamped everything else, which was betting that the pool of great founders was bigger than it appeared and that you could back people pre-company. But like in terms of did we think that specifically would work, I don't think we even interrogated that assumption. I think we we sort of, you know, I mean, it's a bit of a cliche, but I think there is a lot in the idea that naivety can be a real strength if it turns out that the conventional wisdom of the industry that you're entering is in some way sclerotic and, you know, doesn't necessarily reflect, you know, like the efficient frontier of what's possible. And so for us, like, I, I think if we'd actually properly asked that question, we would have not done it. Um, you know, I, I, in, in that it, th there would have been very little good evidence supporting the, the what we doubt, yeah, if we would call the hunch, you know, like, um, and, and that, that kind of naivety, I think can be helpful. I mean, you can overplay that. Like it's, 
Naivety is also unhelpful. I mean, one thing I always tell our entrepreneurs is it, it took us a long time to get to anything that looked like a business. I mean, today, if we're lucky, you know, we built $10 billion worth of companies being, being quite successful. But, um, you know, I, it took us four years before we really, I think, could even vaguely say like, huh, maybe this is, maybe this is a thing. So I think, you know, one advantage of starting young is, you, you know, like we were 29 at that point. We still felt quite young. I think if we'd started when we were 35, we'd have been like, oh, this, <laughs> um, it feels, it feels like we're wasting a lot of time. Yeah. yeah. Gotcha. So it should people on the margin, and this is, you know, I don't know. It's it's hard to give. Yeah, it's very hard to give general advice. So I, I'll keep that in mind. But on the margin, should people stick with things more if you're smart and if you've, you know, think you've got a good hunch? Um, I I don't know is the answer. I don't know if you should stick with things more. I think what you should do is, um, I, I would split it into two parts. So I see people make what I believe are two mistakes, two different kinds of mistakes when, when confronting this sort of question. So one, I think people vastly undervalue the, um, the optionality inherent in trying to find out. Um, so as in, I, I think that when you, one of the underrated things about starting a company is that you will, for very low cost, learn whether something might work. And if it does work, that is so enormously valuable that it was definitely worth paying the cost that it might not. Um, it's such an asymmetric bet. And I hear so many people who I think could be great founders agonize, almost get to this like analysis paralysis around one, whether they're ready, and two, whether or not the idea is good. And the answer is like, both your abilities as a founder and the quality of the idea are much closer to being like procedurally generated by the act of getting started <laughs> than they are like these things that you can analyze ex ante. And so like, I think people massively undervalue the, the value of, of finding out. So that's the first thing, like it's less about sticking and it's more like, tr you know, try at all. Um, that said, I think the second thing people do is the, the bit where it doesn't make any sense to like stick at something is if the, you know, you, you, you should be thinking in bats. You know, you, you you should be creating experiments for yourself where you can evaluate in the you know in the along the way, what is the positive signal I would expect to see if this was gonna be a thing. And now now for EF that was long and painful. Like you know, it took us, for example, um ten years from founding, not ten years from investing in this, but ten years from founding to build our first billion dollar company. And even then, I'm like, oh, is that really proof that it's working? You know, like you, you can always second guess whether you've really got proof. But I think what you can usually tell yourself about any given experiment in an entrepreneurial context is, what is the signal I would expect to see now if this was going to be actually a big success 10 years from now? And so for us at EF, like the reason we kept going, and, and there were, you know, we, we, we left our jobs in uh, September. Uh, and I can easily imagine a world where we'd quit by January. But what we did, which I think was good, like one of the few really good decisions we made in that first year was rather than give ourselves loads of time to recruit the first cohort, we set the deadline to be New Year's Eve of that year. So we had like three and a half, four months. Um, and you know what? Like we got hundreds of applicants and a lot of them were terrible. Um, <laughs> but there was like a real hardcore group of 
you know, like 78 applicants were like, these people look really interesting. Pretty good. Exceptional people. And so, like, we had no, like, like, to be clear, like, and to emphasize the point in, like, how people should stick or not stick to something, we had no proof that the methodology or the thesis were going to work. Like, cool, you could put these people in a room and nothing might happen. But for the stage that we were at, you know, like, in the bet we were making, that was a positive signal. And so, like, I think it buys you a bit of, almost like a willpower boost to then like observe the next um, set of outcomes. And, you know, actually that took a bit longer, you know, like then it was, it wasn't until the following September that we really got to observe whether these people would build companies and then, you know, another six months before we know whether anyone would fund them. And so you're like, I think you're just constantly running at a moving target. But the thing you need to be honest about, honest to yourself about is like, is this where you would want to be given the goal that you're getting, you know, kind of say you're aiming for for the long run. That's that's super helpful. That's super helpful. So it's like it's it's a it's a moving target, but you need to keep it up, kind of your eye on a ball, like in, in the future, and, you, and you're trying to meet the, these goals and getting feedback. And it's kind of a more procedural thing than just like you know. Yeah. yeah. The the one thing I just emphasize on that, just just to tie the two halves of my question together, is yeah. the nice thing about that is that if you're honest with yourself, and actually after three months or whatever, if we hadn't got those applications. Hey, it's cost you three months. Like the the important part, it almost feels like almost feels like sticking is is the is winning and like like dropping is losing. Not at all. Like the, this is what I mean about the option value, right? I mean, it's so asymmetric. If it turned out not to work, like don't feel guilty about it. Great, you've, you learned something. Move on. Like I think if more people took that approach, we'd also increase the supply of people actually trying to do new and interesting things. And I think that's important. That that's that's super interesting. Uh, I, I want to do this for EF. So I, I ran this calculation for something I was I was writing for Eric recently about uh, you know the expected value of getting into Y Combinator. It was something like twenty five million dollars, and that's that's like it's like double the value of a Harvard MBA. And I'm sure EF would be something like very impressive like that, where it's like the the expected value is is actually like really high to like go through a program like this, even though you know they're like kind of tail weighted at times. Yeah. Yeah, do, do you think like people are just bad at assessing like uh, taking those small bets? Like you know, you guys like were rational about this. It. Like, well, you know, three months we can go back, we can do something else. If it doesn't work, that's fine. But the upside is is massive. It's you know billions and dollars of value created for the world. Um, do you think? Yeah, are, are people just bad at, at assessing re- risk, and are they just too kind of um, focused on avoiding the downside? If that makes sense. Uh, this is a great question. I I, I would say two things. Um, both of which are slightly avoiding the question. So feel free to press me up. Right, right. <laughs> if at the end of it, it feels like I haven't answered. That'd be a bad question. Um, no, no, it's not a bad question. I, I, I think, so my first answer would be, I don't think most people even get to the stage of making that calculation. Gotcha. And that I think is, I think making that decision is downstream of a lot of cultural uh, norms that most places don't have. Um, I actually find that when we, if we get candidates to that stage, Actually, they usually do make the right, I'm biased, like the right call, as in they usually do say like, yeah, the expected value of this is high, it's totally asymmetric, like, you know, worst case, I'm going to meet a community of people who I'm probably going to be, you know, we don't have a lot of problems with people like getting to the point of running the calculation and then being like, oh, I just, I'm putting so much weight on the downside, Um, which to be clear, I I don't think it's absurd that they might, there probably are some cultures where that would be more likely, but but I, I, I think getting to the point of making the calculation, there's there's like a legibility thing. Like, is this even an option that I can um, put a shape around? Um, that, that that's a big deal. Um, and then there is a there's a sort of 
broader sort of cultural issue around just what's what's legitimate. Um, you know, one one sort of like anecdote that maybe illustrates this is when we actually in both London and then when we opened up in Singapore, we found that one of the key stakeholder groups that we just had completely not thought about was parents. So we, we target generally, or we did at the time, young people, you know, like people literally coming out of university or in the first couple of years. These days, a bit, a bit more flex on that. But like, and, and, you know, one thing that was non-obvious was that, or to me at least, was that if their parents thought this was legitimate and, uh, or even prestigious, then it was then then that totally changed the calculation. Um, but at, and you know you could say, oh well, surely great founders don't care about what their parents think. I, I think this this is sort of this weird, um, very Silicon Valley centric reasoning where it's like people are like wildly impacted by context. Like you know, it's the classic like what is the you know what is the water you're swimming in that you can't see? And I think like. I think it's a really dangerous idea for society to to sort of imbibe that entrepreneurs are these like completely, um, you know, against the grain weirdos and misfits, you know, who just like, they don't need any source of like social validation in order to do that. Actually, that's not true at all. In fact, I think the history of that Silicon Valley is the opposite. It's creating a, a context where it's normalized so that people don't even have to make that, that calculation. And so like in both the UK and in Singapore, we sort of deliberately hacked the process by partnering with organizations that carried prestige, even though they were completely irrelevant to what we were actually doing. So, you know, the first um, the first kickoff event we did for the first London cohort, we did at 10 Downing Street, you know, the, the prime minister's official residence in London. Like, was there any relevance to that? No, not at all. But they all got a picture outside the front door and they all sent it to their parents and every single one of these people signed up to join the program. And so I think... I think we just generally still underrate the power of, of culture and, and like a lot of the way that people make these decisions is just downstream of that in, in like very deep ways that mean they never even get to the calculation. Man, that, that's really good. That reminds me, Brian Armstrong tells a story where he was, you know, working at Airbnb, kept applying to an accelerator. He might have been Y Combinator. I'm not sure. Yeah, and until he got in, he couldn't explain to his parents why he wanted to leave and start Coinbase. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. <laughs> one, one thing that I think is really fascinating about so many amazing founders is that when you dig into their stories, there's so often a point where they are so far outside the like classic mythologized version of a Steve Jobs or an Elon Musk story. There's, there's often a moment where you're like, if you met this person at this point, you would think they were just like, either a wannabe or a loser, you know, like, and, and, and I don't mean like about their talent. I just mean that there is this, I do think it's so like pernicious, the myth that like the great founders just had everything figured out from the start and were always these ultra sophisticated people. Like sophistication, all these things, these are like cultural attributes that are like learned and inherited and imitated. And like, you know, I, one of you know, our biggest company, Tractable at EF, I really distinctly remember the founder, I don't think you'd mind me saying this, replying to an email from a VC when he were, was graduating from EF. And, you know, he was like brand new to stops. And the guy was like, can you send me a deck? And instead of coming to ask someone at EF what that meant, he was just like, what's a deck? That's what he put in his thing. Like, this is a guy that runs a billion dollar business. Um, and like, you could take that snapshot and be like, 
this person, you know, is X or Y. And the reality is like entrepreneurs, in my experience, are just very talented people who would be successful at nearly anything they did. And therefore redirecting this talent to entrepreneurship is really high value. That's that's so good. That that's been one of the more surprising things about about running this podcast. You know, you talk to people like you, like Vitalik Buterin, and you know, just the list goes on, and you just realize they're they're just they're people. You know, what I mean, they they're they're yeah. they're not they're not there's not some halo that you know. I mean, they're very smart, very talented, but at the end of the day, uh, they are just people. Yeah, and if I can labor the point just for another one minute, yeah. I, 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 I'm very passionate about this. Like, I I really believe that. Um, very few people have really bothered to look at the data on what makes great entrepreneurs. And so like there are so many myths and there's so much like totally bizarre analysis, often by VCs who I think would completely reject this quality of analysis if it were about anything else, but they select entirely on the dependent variable and say like, oh, well, great founders have these characteristics. And it's like, well, what, relative to what population? Like, you know, like there's all this stuff. But like the, the number one thing that I take from reading the literature, and, you know, I don't want to pretend I've been like ultra um, comprehensive in it, but like the, the most surprising thing I have come across in the literature around entrepreneurship is that whenever you get a quasi-natural experiment that means that people who wouldn't normally be entrepreneurs but are very high skill become entrepreneurs somewhat involuntarily. A great example is, for example, in the UK and uh, US in periods where banks hire fewer people like exogenously, you know, because there's a downturn. Not only do people, more people become entrepreneurs, somewhat predictable, but I think the conventional wisdom like from VC land would be, well, these, these pe people weren't passionate about entrepreneurship, right? Otherwise they'd have done it already. These are people who were like enforced to do it, so they're probably less good. No, like on average, those people do better than people who choose to be entrepreneurs in, in normal times. Why? Basically because they're disproportionately high-skill individuals. And the reality is, again, with the possible exception of Silicon Valley, in most places around the world, again, I'm going to, I don't mean this in a rude way, but like you could increase the average caliber of entrepreneurs in terms of just raw smarts and capability by transferring from whatever is the most prestigious career path in that place into entrepreneurship. I think conventionally you're like, yeah, but they won't be, they won't be true founders. That's just a, a complete you know, kind of made up concept. It's not a real thing. Like all the evidence is involuntary entrepreneurs that come from high skill professions do better than average entrepreneurs. And I find that like an incredibly liberating fact for humanity that we can actually just allocate more talent to this space and you will get better outcomes. That is super, um, that's a very encouraging statement. You know, that, that is very encouraging because there is a story, like you said, where it's like, well, you know, it's like, very, it's not just the skill component. There's these other weird things you have to have, like all these, these these interesting insights, and it's like very, you know, you have to know someone for a long time, and you can't engineer this. But in reality, a lot of what you can do is you can take high skilled people if you redirect them in the right way, and they can be successful in building kind of breakout companies. At the end of the day, I totally believe that. That is, well, I've spent a long time betting on that, but I, th I think the evidence is actually relatively clear on it. <laughs> that that's great. That 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 is that's super interesting. I, I'm curious. I want to talk a little bit about um, you know EF and uh, th this this idea of co-founder matching, which is something you guys really did pioneer. You know, no one thought this was possible before you did it. Um, are there you know 
I, I don't, you don't have to give the special sauce away, but I, I, I'm curious. It, it does seem like it, it is a difficult problem to match people together well because these foundings are, they are really important. And, and how do you match people together well? Do you encourage people just to, you know, break up quickly? Do you encourage people to, you know, search, you know, in a wider space? How do you get people to find good co founders? Yeah. Well, I think you sort of touched on it. I think, again, it goes back to this thing where I think people, when people think start to think about this problem, they tend to think about it in an overly analytical way. So like let's say there's an EF cohort of 50 people. I think, you know, left to their own devices, most people, and I think this makes a ton of sense why they would think this, think, you know, breadth first, right? You know, I'm gonna meet everyone in the group and then I'm gonna like stack rank them in some way against some sort of criteria, and then I'm gonna sort of like work with the person that's top of my list. That was our intuition too. We spent a lot of time in the first few years trying to make that work. And lots of other things work, like personality testing, like all sorts of like companies approaches that had a formula, blah, blah, blah. We found that literally none of these things work. Um, and again, I think that your uh, the quality of your co-founding relationship, again, is like somewhat procedurally generated. In other words, you only can find that out by actually working with someone. Alice and I have a whole book about this coming out uh, in September, uh, by the way, um, How to Be a Founder. Um, but it's not out yet, so I'm not plugging it. But 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 basically, what we say in the book and what we've practiced for the last decade at EF is that you just need to invert the social norms that exist in the real world, quote unquote. So in the real world, if you and I, Will, were considering starting a company together, the bar for us deciding to do that would be really high. And the reason it'd be really high is primarily because once we decided to do it, the bar to decide to get out of it would also be really high. You know, it would be super embarrassing. Like it would be embarrassing to have the conversation, you and I, but also be embarrassing to tell our friends like, oh, how's it going with Will? Oh, actually we stopped working. You know, like just with all these like small, but like on, on, on mass, like extremely powerful incentives to make it, hard to test a co-founder relationship. So what EF does systematically is it just inverts those two things. It makes the bar to getting into a team really low, precisely because we engineer a sort of like artificial social norm that there is going to be no awkwardness whatsoever when we get out of a team. And it turns out that if you do that, and you, you have to really lean into it, by the way, you can't just say, by the way, guys, don't be awkward about getting out of a team. I mean, like we, we go to great lengths. Like every time you form a team, you have to sort of like, I say register it. You click a button on the platform. And then when you get out of the team, you, you, know, you click the button again. That will be sent to a Slack channel that everyone sees that's like, Will and Matt have got into a team. And then Will and Matt have broken up. And if you break up and it goes on the Slack channel, you have to like write a comment and celebrate the breakup, explain what you learn, and then everyone piles in and like congratulates you on breaking up. Why are they congratulating you? One, you learned something about what you need in a co-founder and what it's gonna make, what, you know, take for you to find a really productive partnership. And two, without sounding too sort of like mechanical about it, you've added liquidity back into the pool. Like, you know, like if people wanna stay, to, you know, velocity really matters in a fixed just size community. Like you want to make the time spent in bad teams really, really, really short. So there is a little bit more to it than that. And obviously like we've built a set of tools and methods and um, again, norms that, that facilitate this. But broadly, we, we try and approach it from a position of extreme intellectual humility. I have no idea who you should co-found with and nor do you until you try. Um, now, as it happens, 
a bot- almost all the good teams at EF form in the first few weeks. Um, so we gotcha. give people three months. Actually, we've, we've cut it a bit, but you know, we give people quite a long time, but the vast majority of teams form in the first two weeks. But you know, the, the average person we fund three months later, so as in or rather the average company we fund, um, the founders have been through about two and a half pairings you know, on average before they gotcha. found the right person. And, and I do think that although there's a bunch of our teams that were first, you know, the first person they met, it worked, the people where that's not true, they will at least tell you that there was a huge amount that they learned about what they were looking for through the failed partnerships. Gotcha. I, I, I love that. And do you have, do you have a sense of, you know, seeing so many cohorts of, of what works in a co-founding relationship? Is it kind of like a technical pairing and a more, you know, business side sales marketing pairing? Uh, or is there it just really no formula and it is just people need to try it? You, you definitely need complementary skills um, for sure. Now, depending on the kind of company that, that could dictate very different pairings. Like sometimes it makes sense to have two people with really deep technical skills as the two co-founders. Sometimes you do want someone with, you know, I, you know, hesitate to say like the business guy, but you know, like you 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 want a person where you know she she has sold things before, or you know he has worked in the domain that you're trying to sell to before, or whatever. You know, like that 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 makes a lot of sense. But you know, that is really contingent on the idea. Um, what I would say is the way we what I what we do know is the way you measure that is just by productivity. So like, well, one of the challenges of investing this early. You know, we invest three in companies three months after the founders met at most. And sometimes it's like, you know, six weeks. Um, what you can measure, even if the idea is not even set, is how productive is this team together? And, you know, I, I hesitate to say anything universal about entrepreneurship because there are so many exceptions, but it is really tough for me to think of a really good uh, company that we have funded that wasn't really productive as soon as they started working together. And it is, it, the converse is also true. You know, like, I, I, I don't think that teams that are super productive, it's very rare. If you really genuinely are just getting so much done as a pairing, it's so unlikely that you don't figure something out. Doesn't mean you're going to be a billionaire, but like productivity is this core, core metric at EF. Does that look like just kind of output, like, you know, work product, like whatever, whatever that looks like, whatever the product is, like they have produced a lot of impressive things in a short amount of time? Yeah, I mean, I think over the years, we've measured this in lots of different ways at EF. And, you know, I think, I think we've got better at it. But I, the, the heuristic I give people that you can implement very easily yourself is this. I'm just going to sorry, it's so obvious to the point of being banal, but I think, I think it's <laughs> worth doing systematically, which is decide what an ambitious goal would be for a week. As in, like, what what would actually be like if I'm working at my peak? I, you know, we could get this done together. Write it down, revisit in a week. Did you do it? Um, now, what I think is interesting is one: the best teams are consistently like, let's say, at least three weeks in four, they're hitting like an ambitious goal. They're the good teams. The best teams also are creating what I would call like positive surprise. It's like, oh, we, we genuinely were stretching ourselves in setting that goal. But then this other thing happened and we did this and it was actually great. And, you know, I think like for me, if I could only, you know, if I could only know one thing about a team, it would be like, how many positive surprises do they generate per week on average? Um, and I don't care what they're working on. That would, you know, we, we have like a half billion dollar company in the portfolio that was just working 
was running in completely the wrong direction for the entirety of EF, but were wildly productive in doing so. And it took them you know, another year post-EF to figure out the right direction. But I would always bet on the productivity. That, that's how I think about it. So uh, founders should should focus on shipping, being productive as possible. Like it really is like that. That's a that's a, that's a good metric. Yeah, I, I'm curious. Do people come to you with ideas, or or do they do they co-found and like find their co-founder and like come up with an idea? How does how does that work? Yeah, it's a funny thing in that like obviously it doesn't work if no one has ideas. Um, <laughs> it, I mean, well, we found that it's pretty tough to like start with a blank sheet of paper. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I think we've often struggled to phrase and frame this for entrepreneurs. Like, we're not anti-idea. Like, actually, we love it when people apply with ideas. It's just that we're not going to take the idea into account in deciding whether to admit God. it. So, like, I would say probably 70% of people join with ideas, of which half are terrible. <laughs> and, and if we had used it as a filter, we wouldn't have admitted them. And so, like, what we ask people to do is, like, we're, we don't tell people to w- what to work on. You can work on whatever you want, but we think most people should be open-minded about whether their idea might not be improved by working with someone else. Um, so we take people with ideas, we take people without ideas, but the, the point is that we are, at the point of admission, completely agnostic about that. We don't think at that stage that it is a helpful um, proxy for the quality of the entrepreneur. Gotcha, gotcha. That makes makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. Uh, Matt, I, I I'm curious. Can you talk a little bit about the history of ambition? You you've written a little bit about this. You've done some really good podcasts on this. Uh, you know, what does the history of ambition look like, and, and why is it important? Yeah, well, it sort of touches on one of the themes we've already discussed, which is uh, this idea of there being default paths for ambitious people, which could be more or less valuable. Um, uh, for for the world, so you know I, the way I think about ambition is like ambition is the is the search for for impact, and it's the search crucially for for leverage. Um, so in the absence of you know, social and other technologies, most of us can't have a lot of impact outside our immediate person, and you know there's nothing wrong with that. But ambitious people, almost by definition, are sort of thinking, how do I you know, simply by my own actions, find levers that, that that just magnify and amplify that impact into the world. And so the history of ambition is the search for like those levers and finding the most effective levers that there are. Now, obviously, the what those levers are is both culturally and technologically determined. And so, you know, like my, my argument that, that I've made is, you know, a lot of the entrepreneurs of today you know, if they were alive a thousand years ago, they wouldn't be entrepreneurs because there wasn't the there weren't the social and cultural and you know and technical technologies that that, that, that gave leverage. Instead, most of them would be probably priests. Um, they, you know, I'm talking in a Western Europe sense, which obviously where I grew up. That why not because they were particularly religious. In fact, they probably wouldn't be, but just that they the the church was a path to literacy and to scale through you know the the sort of parish and you know uh, episcopal system and that gave some people not very many but like the most talented and ambitious a, a genuine path to achieve real scale and it was kind of the only path really for people that were born you know not into um wealthy families already and you know english history in the medieval and early modern period is full of these 
kind of amazing stories of people who came from absolutely nothing, climbed the church hierarchy and became very powerful. The example I've talked about most is um, a guy called Thomas Woolsey who became Cardinal Woolsey and built one of the grandest you know, houses, Hampton Court um, in, 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 in England. But you know, I, I think the, the point that I have tried to make to people is that over time, those ambitions, those, sorry, those levers change. So, you know, like at various points, you know, arguably, you know, military service was, you know, one of the biggest levers um, for, for ambitious people. You know, I think one of the interesting things about the 20th century is that you started to get like a much more formalized set of mechanisms around how ambitious people could could amplify their impact around organizations. So like by the time you get to the 20th century, one of the like obvious ways to, you know, seek leverage is, you know, run a big company and tell those people what to, below you what to do, who will tell people, you know, bureaucracy was an incredible invention in the history of ambition. And, and, and I think the thing that I would emphasize is that every time you get a, you know, a sort of social, uh, a sort of social technology change, you, you usually also get an institutional change to train people for that new social technology. So, you know, I, I won't labor the point, it's probably quite obvious to people, but you know, like, a whole, with the rise of literacy, you get a whole set of innovations around what schools are and what universities are. Um, military school, business school, et cetera. And so you can probably see where this is going. That my, you know, my big claim is, to me, it's very obvious in the 21st century, by far the most powerful um, uh, technology of ambition is um, software, you know, kind of um, services that can be delivered over an internet connection and, 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 all, the, and all the sort of like adjacent things to that. Um, and I think there's a bunch of reasons for this. Uh, you know, scale is built in. You know, like if, you, if it can be delivered over an internet connection, you can literally reach billions of people. Um, cost is very low. Like, it, it, like the, the fact that it's so cheap to get started in tech, uh, at least, again, sort of taking a sort of Western perspective means that, you know, the, the relative power of capital compared to talent is, is, is low. You know, I always say like, you know, the, the sort of like, tagline is you know from writing checks to writing code you know is a big shift towards individual talent in in my view um and scope there's almost nothing you can't no problem you can't attack through digital technologies and so you know my, my argument is that it kind of seems obvious to me that with the rise of that technology of ambition we're going to see the demand for entrepreneurship increase by orders of magnitude there'll be orders of magnitude more people that want to be technology entrepreneurs say 30 years from now than 30 years ago. And so the question is, what are the, you know, what are the institutions that we need that can have a comparable impact um, on, you know, that field that the university or the school did on, you know, literacy? Obviously, I hope and believe that Entrepreneur First will be one of them. Um, and, you know, in particular, because I think by taking our unit of interest as the individual rather than the company, um, there's a real opportunity to create um, you know, that legibility and that legitimacy that we talked about earlier, but also start to actually shift the culture and, you know, kind of, uh, you know, with some irony, I suppose, become a, a badge, a legitimation of that career path um, that enables lots more people to have a lot more impact. That's great. That, that's great. Do you think 
the as a piece of technology that you know founders and individuals can use for leverage do you think we're you know the internet is becoming mature are we still early you know where's your sense of where we are in that cycle i when i when i think to the really really big companies it feels like you know the googles the facebooks uh you know th- those were amazons those were built you know the early 2000s and the 10s you know the ubers and the airbnbs they're a little bit smaller so is there a sense like some of the fruit's been picked or do you think it's just like you know perhaps the lot that's kind of a lagging indicator uh, it's it's a great question and and you know sort of much debated. I my strong belief is the answer is we're just getting started. Um, I I think you know, I very much I, I don't know if you've seen or your listeners have uh, seen you know the essay by um, Ben Thompson on this topic where he talks about uh, effectively a lot of the platforms we have today are natural endpoints for you know kind of in in the history of computing you know kind of. Um, everywhere, <laughs> and you know, like we, we we can compute everywhere uh, today, and you know, kind of on a like handheld device. And you know, if you just sort of uh, look at the the chain of of companies that were disrupted, it's less obvious today what the how much further you could go on these dimensions. So that I sort of buy, but you know, to to try and bring it to life, I think we. I mean, thinking of, for example, biology as an information problem. We're like at the tiniest, you know, like we're we a speck on the chart of how far there is to go on that. I suspect the same is going to be, end up being true for energy. I suspect there is a Google scale company that is not Google to be still built in, in AI. Um, I, I, I just think that the, the other way, other than like Ben Thompson's way of thinking about it is like, what are the, you know, how, how do you think about the, possibilities of combinatorial innovation with the building blocks we've got. And it feels like we've taken that a long way, but actually I think we've sort of remained very much in our silos. Like, you know, Google is an internet company. Like, yeah, it's doing a lot of other stuff, but it's certainly not a like biology as an information problem company. Um, And I I suspect there's a trillion dollar company, several trillion dollar companies in that, for example. Gotcha. So still, still a lot of low hanging fruit. There's a lot, there's a lot to do. I don't know if it's low hanging. I think these are hard, hard <laughs> businesses to build. But I, I think there is a lot of fruit to pick. That's great. That's great. Um, I, I've got kind of two last questions here. First one is, uh, you gave a great talk. Uh, it was, it may have been at one of the EA Globals. Maybe it was more of the local conferences at, in, in Oxford um, about you know how EA should should think about using the internet for scale and founding companies as a as a good career path. Um, do you still think that's true? Do you think EA should on the margin think more about you know building great companies as a way to be effective, you know, an effective altruist in the world? Yeah, I, I, I do. Um, I, I, I guess I think there are two different arguments that could get you there. Um, one is just that it's quite a, you know, if as a community EAs decide that that's good, and, you know, I think there's a lot of people that believe that um, anyway within the EA movement. It, the, the nice thing is that um, you have even more downside protection from the normal concern, you know, the, the, the sort of normal, I guess normally I would argue, hey, it's such an asymmetric bet that it's worth taking. If you're an EA and like a large chunk of the cohort of entrepreneurs are also EA, you should feel really good about that because, you know, like maybe you'll be the next Sam Bankman-Free, but if not, hopefully it's someone else in your cohort. And actually like in that sense, if what you really care about, you know, is just like what happens to the proceeds of, of your gains, like the more EAs that get into this space, if you believe what I say, it's like actually largely a talent game rather than do you have the entrepreneur gene, then it sort of seems like, 
the expected value is really high, and the more EAs that are doing it, the more likely that when you pick from the distribution, it's an EA that makes it really big and can do the next you know, future fund or whatever. So I, I think that's one argument. And the other argument, though, which is like not an earning to give argument, is I just do think that if you can find things that work at unit scale and are positive and then do them billions of times, that is an underrated... Um, you know, that is an underrated way to have positive impact in the world. And, um, you know, I mean, like, I'm, I'm going to say something very facetious, but it's, like, not insane, which is, you know, you could argue that one of the most EA companies you could build would be just a better dating, uh, dating app. You know, like, I think there's a lot of evidence that, you know, matching really matters for lifetime uh, satisfaction, and there's lots of spill, positive spillover effects on that. And, you know, I, I think the, the market for... Fighting your match is, you know, still probably, I'm not suggesting people go out and build a dating app, but it's just an example of like, I think you could have even just a lot of counterfactual impact in a sort of like pro EA way by building something that just has a ton of consumer surplus. Um, I think there's obviously better examples that are like, how do you scale like more conventional positive impact? But I'm a big fan of consumer surplus at scale. I, I think it's like one of the most important things there is. Absolutely. Well, you, you mentioned this earlier. Most founders, you know, are especially founders that kind of go through EF, they, they're not building rent sinking companies. They are building companies that are Absolutely. providing, you know, some deflationary value to, to the world, which is, which is super cool. Um, well, Matt, my last question here, you just raised a massive round in a, in a downturn, no less, which, you know, su- congratulations to that uh, for y'all on, on executing on that. It's super, super cool. It's a great sign of, you know, y'all, everything you guys have built. It's it, I, it really inspiring. What's next for EF? What does the next 50 years look like? Yeah. Um, well, you're right. It's a very exciting time at EF. So, um, yeah, we just raised $158 million from coalition of, um, I think, some of, in my view, some of the world's best founders, uh, people like John and Patrick Collison, Reid Hoffman, Matt Mullenweg, uh, many, many others. Um, and, and we structured this, I'm, I'm not going to be too boring and technical, but we structured this in, a, I think, a pretty interesting way in that we, we, this is not a fund. Um, it's a it's an investment into our company. It's the, the goal is to be a permanent capital vehicle. And one of the reasons it's really exciting to structure like that is that it allows us to think and behave like a like an operating company rather than a fund. And the reason I emphasize that is I think one of the limitations of funds, although they make so much sense for most VCs, is that they're kind of a single product. Like you basically swapping cash for equity at a price determined by the market. And some people are really good at that, and that's amazing. But what is quite hard to do in a fund model is to go back to your LPs, your you know your investors, and say, hey, I know we've been making you a ton of money doing X for the last 10 years, but now we're going to try and do Y. Um, I, LPs don't like that. And rightly so. Like <laughs> LPs have to be more conservative than you know, like individual angel investors, they, you know, they're, they're investing, like, for example, pensioners' money or whatever. What's nice about being a company is that you create complete long-term permanent alignment between, you know, my analysis interests and the interests of every investor, which includes, by the way, some really big institutions, including some pension funds. Um, but what we're able to say is, look, we've made a ton of money for our investors over the last decade by doing product A, but we believe we are touching just a tiny fraction of the you know kind of space of great founders that the world's missing out on. Like today, EF has one product and it works incredibly well for people in the first eight years of their career who want to start a company right now and need a co-founder. That's great. As I said, done about $10 billion of value through that one product. Feel good about that. But 
you know, what about second time founders? What about people with 15 years of experience who, or people who don't want or can't make a three month full time quit your job commitment right now? Once you start to think about like the space of founders that the world's missing out on, you start to think like, wow, this EF needs to be a multi-product company. And yeah, like we, we're going to continue doing what we're doing. So we're not abandoning this product. It's, we, we love it. Uh, we think it's had a ton of impact. But I think what you can expect to see from EF, in, even in the short term, even in the next sort of 12 months, is a lot of experimentation around the product offering for different kinds of founders globally. And I think if we do that right, then, you know, to answer your question over the 50-year horizon, I think the way I see it is we want EF to be, you know, the obvious place for any entrepreneur to find their co-founder. And we want to have a product that fits, um, you know, every uh, every entrepreneur, you know, in every sector, in in every part of the world. And I think that one of the you know one of my big reflections in general is that founders probably underrate um, longevity in in built. You know, like if you care about impact, then something that goes on for a very long time, you know, almost by definition, eventually has has more impact than stuff that doesn't. I think our goal is is increasingly to think about what does it take to make sure that EF outlives us. You know, what does it take to, um, you know, to be self-funding, not to ever need to raise external capital, but also to be, um, you know, a, wh why do universities last for like thousands of years when companies normally die? I think largely because they're incredible platforms for talent that have been very flexible in the product that they offer, in all, um, but have kept very fixed the idea of being a springboard or amplifier for individual talent. I don't think we want to be a university. That's not anywhere close to our goals. We're all about building companies that otherwise wouldn't exist. But when you start to think about like being a platform for talent, like aiming to be a meaningful part of the life story of some of the most impactful people of this century, I think it's, a, it's something I can imagine spending the next 50 years working on. Man, I, I love that vision. I really love that vision. That, it's so cool. I wish you guys the best of luck. I can't wait to see what comes down the pike. Um, Matt, thank you so much for coming on the show. Where can people find you? Where should we send people if they're interested in EF? Awesome. Yeah, well, you can find EF at joinef.com, J-O-I-N-E-F.com. Uh, and you can find me probably best on Twitter at Matthew Clifford, where I tweet a lot about EF, but also about some of the other things that we've been talking about as well. Excellent. Thanks so much. Thank you. Special thanks to our sponsor, Bismarck Analysis, for the support. Bismarck Analysis creates the Bismarck Brief, a newsletter about intelligence-grade analysis of key industries, organizations, and live players. You can subscribe to Bismarck Brief at brief.bismarckanalysis.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Narratives. Special thanks to Donovan Dorrance, our audio editor. You can check out Donovan's work and music at donovandorrance.com.